Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Daniel, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. Thanks, Robbie. Uh, my name is Daniel Peretti. I'm a professor of folklore at Memorial University in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, it's pretty far away from everything else in North America. We're on a big island in the middle of the Atlantic, kind of. Uh, but um, I'm very excited to be here today. So thank you for the opportunity to come and, and talk for a while. Now, what sparked up your interest in folklore? Like, how'd you get started? Well, it was mostly my dad, to be honest. He would always tell me old stories, and he was really interested in in these sorts of things. Uh, and then I, when I was uh, probably about 10 or 11 years old, in, in our, our school library, I found a book of Norse myths, and I checked it out, and I just kept it for a really long time. Uh, so that, that was the start of it all. It had really nice pictures of Vikings and things like that. Uh, and all of their, you know, their houses and their gods and their their weapons and their armor and their ships. Uh, really, really interesting stuff. So that was where it started for me. And then when when my dad found out I was interested in that, he he bought me a bunch of Thor comics when I was a kid, uh, which I read for years uh, over and over again. Some of them I still go back to sometimes. Uh, and the more I the more I went through school and and, and saw that there was all of this material out there, uh, folklore, storytelling, and, and folk music, and and things like that, uh, the better it got. But really, when it finally clicked in that this is, could be a career was after I'd gotten a bachelor's degree uh, from a little university in Michigan called Grand Valley. Uh, the day after we graduated, my roommate and I, we, we just started driving around the United States, and we did that for about a month. And we got to California. Uh, and we went to the University of California and we were looking for their film department because I was a film student. We were both we were both in film uh, at the time. And um, so we went to their film department and just looking at it through the for the directory, trying to find film, I saw that beneath it was folklore. Uh, and so I looked into that, too, and I wound up going to grad school and, and getting a Ph.D. In, in the study of folklore. And stuck with it ever since. It's it's funny you mentioned the library kind of sparked up your interest when it really looks into folklore because Graphic Universe was like a comic book series or a little series that, but it was all like folklore style, but it was in cartoon style. And that's what sparked up my interest in the Greek mythology when I was like in elementary school was just reading those. I read at almost every single Graphic Universe when I can get my hands on Hercules, all these myths and legends. And then next thing I know, I just expanded it out when I got older, trying to find out what the real context was compared to the comics. And surprisingly for a fifth grade library that is some graphic content but it is it is accurate it is very accurate yeah oh i'm not familiar with those it sounds interesting uh, i like it when they they stick pretty close to the old stories uh, there's a tendency for people to to make it their own and there's nothing wrong with this but uh it can it can be a little misleading sometimes and yeah the, the myths are are often graphic in many ways now you wrote a book about uh superman and myth and folklore but I wanted to ask, if your dad got you Thor comics, I mean, do you look at the Thor movies now and do you see any kind of similarities? Do you think it's an accurate depiction? I mean, obviously he gets put in some more of like the can't be Adam West Batman category now, it seems like with a lot of the movies. But I'm sure you must have seen a spark of interest amongst the general population when it comes to learning more about these figures like Loki, figures like Thor, um, especially what their actual roots are. I love those movies, to tell you the truth. Uh, I, there's no way to be objective about them. That was that was my childhood. Uh, I wrote a book on Superman, but I didn't have any Superman comics until I was uh, in my 20s. Uh, the Thor stuff to me uh, is really interesting and, and it helps, right? So I can teach a class now on mythology and I don't have to explain who a character like Heimdall is, who's really obscure. Uh, nobody understands what's going on, but people have at least this this starting point. Uh, and so I can I can make references. I can show photographs of of the movies and say, okay, this is what this character was like a thousand years ago. Uh, and and so it's it's great in that sense. The Thor movies, uh, the first three, uh, drew heavily on a specific a specific creator's uh, run on the title back from the eighties. His name is Walt Simonson. He's my favorite comic book artist. Uh, and so it was really exciting to see how they used elements from his stories in in the movies uh and and did their own thing and so there was really interesting stuff like thor using his hammer to keep somebody on the ground to like trap loki at the end I was like i've never seen that before and i haven't read all the thor comics right there's there's hundreds maybe a thousand now with all of the different 
series that he's gone through. So maybe that was in the comics somewhere. I was just really happy to see that they were they were doing different things with it uh, as well. It was exciting. It was I would never have expected a Thor movie to open as the biggest hit at the box office. And yet it, it did. Uh, it was pretty neat. Would you ever think there'd be a pairing between someone like that, Thor or Loki, paired up with some superheroes that were created in a more recent, I mean, at least within the last 70-something, 80-something years, compared to these ancient myths that have, I mean, been transformed in a newer way, but now they're pairing alongside like the Incredible Hulk and Spider-Man and all these other various characters? Yeah, well, that's, that's, uh, that's a big part of the comics and has been uh, since... Uh, the 60s for, for Marvel, right? Uh, with, the, with the DC stuff, it goes back to the, the 40s and 50s. But uh, So I always loved all of that. I, I'm less excited about it now because to, to see all this stuff, to buy all the comics, it, it gets very expensive. Uh, but it's always been part of it. What's interesting was reading the early Thor comics from the 60s uh, as an adult. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't really think about them that critically. But then I start, I start thinking about it, how the mythology works and the first Thor comics, he's clearly not the god Thor. He's a guy who has the power of Thor. Uh, and so over the course of about the first year, they start transforming that into the character is the god. Uh, so to me, there's always something interesting going on. Like I hadn't thought about that at all as a kid. And, and looking at it now, I, I wonder why, why they made that choice. And it seems to be that the artist, you know, Jack Kirby, just wanted to draw more gods. So they're bringing more and more of them in. Uh, and I'm all for that. He's, he's outstanding, right? I, I talk about him in my classes a lot as, as someone who has a, you know, a multi-billion dollar imagination, right? He invented most of the Marvel stuff and a lot of the DC stuff that's in the movies these days. Uh, so it's, it's fun to be able to talk about that. When I started teaching folklore back in 2001, uh, no one would have known what I was talking about. Right. Uh, if I mentioned Darkseid and Thanos as these interesting cosmic god characters, uh, now everybody knows who they are. So, so that's really fun. Uh, well, how did you come across writing about Superman, and what exactly did you focus about when it comes to Superman? Because he's like the he's the monolith. If you want to talk about of the generation of like his symbol on his chest, I think everyone can draw and everyone knows exactly much like Batman. But Superman has eclipsed kind of everything. When you think of a superhero, it's Superman. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I came about this through a number of different ways. I loved Superman when I was a kid, when I was four or five years old, I would wear a cape all the time. Uh, my parents would get upset because I just wouldn't take it off and they'd make me go to the store and I'd refuse to take it off when I put my jacket on and things like that. You got to save it in case a robber comes. That's why you got to have it on. Right. You got to be ready for it whenever it'll happen. I got in trouble for jumping off the roof too many times. And my mom's like, we got to take the cape away. You actually got up to the roof. I did. I did do that. And I yeah. know there was a string of people that probably did the same thing. Yes. Yeah. Most people, it's a story that circulates a lot. And this is, so when you, when you ask, what I'm interested in about Superman, it's that exact thing, right? How he influences people's lives. Uh, so in, in the end, when I was approaching the character, I wanted to know how people made decisions, tough decisions, moral decisions uh, with the influence of Superman on their, on their whole lives. Uh, so it was exciting to me to be able to, to hear a story like that, that you actually got up to the roof. A lot of people get out their windows Right. So they're going like a few feet and they don't get hurt too badly. Uh, there was a story uh, circulating. Now, this is going way back. Right. So after 2001, after 9-11, uh, the way that media presented. We're, we're getting kind of dark here. Sorry about that. <laughs> the way that the media presented um, the flight that crashed in the field. Right. That didn't make it to its target. Um, they were trying to construct heroes on this flight. And the problem was they had no information at all. Uh, so what they did was they were talking to all the people's relatives who had been on the flight. And one of them had a Superman tattoo. And so he became one of the heroes. The names are escaping me at the moment. Uh, so I'm sorry about that. But he became one of the heroes of the story. Uh, and so they're interviewing, you know, his family members and they're saying when he was a kid, he broke his arm jumping out a window because he thought he could fly like Superman with the, the towel wrapped around his neck. Uh, so it was really interesting to me to see all of this happening uh, as as we're trying to find 
stories about 9-11 that can be uplifting and, and find some positive way to come out of this back. I was in grad school at that time, so I was trying to pay attention to all of this. And it just, it kind of snowballed and kept happening. And you start seeing Superman uh, sort of worshiping firefighters and police officers, you know, the first responders. Uh, so DC Comics really leaned into that. So there's a, a famous comic cover where Superman is looking up at a picture of all these firefighters and just saying, wow. Right. So it's, it's glorifying the people who tried to do their best to to save everyone that day. Uh, comics and the nature of heroism in comics, they really struggled with this, uh, this problem of finding heroes because there were so few who actually did anything specific. So they tried to construct them. It's, it's like I said, it's really powerful, compelling stuff. And so to me, that as a folklorist, that's what I look for. Uh, folklore is the study of like informal culture. So all those stories that we tell each other for, on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, just you know, sitting around with your friends, uh, you know, the, the the clothes that we make for ourselves, the the makeup that we put on, the way we do our hair, uh, this, these sorts of things that don't have huge institutional backing. So I'm always looking for those types of uh, culture, be it you know in person and even on the internet. I did a lot of research on the internet for Superman, and I I, I still do because my specialties in, in legends and mythology. Uh, it's not just oral tradition. It's not just out loud. You know, to people sitting in the room, it's all transmitted in so many different ways. Uh, so that's that's the angle I was looking for, right? Uh, what does Superman do for us? What do you? Uh, this is going to be a quick question, but it's going to be one that's going to lead to a bigger question. But what is your favorite god? If you could choose Greek mythology, oh, well, it's hard to beat Loki, to tell you the truth. Uh, just so interesting. Um, people call him a trickster, and I think that's accurate. But it's important to understand that that took a while for people to figure out. Uh, the trickster label was applied to North American stuff, so indigenous cultures across North America. Uh, and those are, I, I got to say, they're all my favorites, right? So you've got in the Pacific Northwest, uh, the Salish culture, the, the, the Shimshin, these groups, the Clinket, um, they have a raven figure who's a trickster as well. Uh, if you go south, you get in California and in some parts of the southwest, you get uh, Coyote, uh, who's a trickster figure. Sometimes these gods are, uh, we don't even really understand them. There's one from Colombia called Wangitsmuna. We don't, we don't really know what this guy is. Uh, so he's going on having adventures, you know, tricking people and doing fun things. And we don't really understand him. Um, what makes you connect with Loki, though? What makes you connect with Loki? So Loki is unpredictable. And I think that's really interesting. So sometimes he's the hero of the story. Uh, there's one where uh, Loki helps the gods defeat some some trolls who are trying to get the sun and the moon and the goddess Freya. Um, I say trolls; they're, they're the Jotun. Uh, the plural is Jotnar. These are these are gods. They're usually translated as giants. So in the early movie, I think the first Thor movie, they go to Jotunheim. Yeah, right. So. They're huge and they're blue. Uh, that's not how they are in the myths. They're just normal sized people. It's just like a name for another group of people. Uh, so Loki is one of them, but he lives with the gods in Asgard. Uh, the name Asgard, it, it literally means like uh, the land of the Aesir, which is the name that the, the old Vikings used to give to their gods. I, Ice or Ace, A-E-S is how it's spelled. So what was interesting to me thinking about this again, coming back to these stories as an adult was that uh, the characters in the comics are called and in the movies are called Asgardians, which means the people that live in Asgard. But Asgard already means the land of the people of, of called the Aesir. Uh, so the people that live in the land of the Aesir, which uh, is one of those weird things that happens as we use other languages in English. I know, that stuff's interesting to me. Uh, so so he's a he's a he's a Jotun, uh, but he lives with all the gods. He's unpredictable. Um, <clears throat> Thor's hammer gets stolen at one point. He's kind of the one responsible for getting it back, for leading Thor through the, the process of getting it back. Uh, but then at the end, he helps burn down the entire cosmos and kill everyone. So he's a villain. He's a hero. He's a trickster. He's a good guy. Uh, he's just kind of clumsy sometimes and gets everybody into trouble uh, by making promises he can't keep. Uh, it's a, it's just for, you never know what he's going to do. Uh, we have a very limited number of Norse myths that survived. And so to get that breadth from them is, is kind of really compelling and interesting. The reason why I asked that was why do you think so many – usually people pick a god or they pick a superhero, something that they can relate to or something that they that becomes their favorite. So why do you think so many people hooked on to Superman? 
so quickly. I mean, you can say it was the time period of when it was released, I and mean, he is kind of like, like I said, one of the monoliths. But if you really examine how many people adapt to him, and then we could take Iron Man, for instance, there's just certain characteristics and traits, or someone envisions something about themselves into somebody, but everybody back in the day wanted to be Superman adults, kids doesn't matter who you are. And I think that's what's interesting to me because I don't know, I mean, a symbol of hope, a symbol of whichever you want to say, but I think, and then we, it's another question, but it boils down to the morality aspect of things. You know, when we saw Superman kill somebody on screen, um, I forgot what was Man of, that was Man of Steel. He snapped, he had to. And I think that depicted a little bit more accurate of how people would be because everyone always envisioned themselves with superpowers and I always thought, would you like not throw the person out a window knowing that he's just going to break out of jail and come after your family? Like, if you really thought about it, like, I hate to be that blunt of an answer, but you really have to start basing in today's morality. We all like to think we'd be the pure one. But to the first question on the aspect of why do you think so many people related to Superman so much? Right. Yeah. You're, well, you're, you're, you're exactly right with that idea of the morality and, and hope and, and things like that. When I would ask people, uh, it's a, it's a really first of all, it's a really tough question for people to answer. Like, how how do you make moral decisions? Right? We don't we don't normally think that way. Uh, we we just make the decisions, right? And sometimes we we belabor over it for for days or months or something. But flip a coin. Um, yeah, right. Sometimes it is kind of random. Uh, so when I when I was asking people why they like Superman, that was usually the only question I needed to ask. Uh, a lot of the study of folklore is based on interviewing people. So we we. We don't just sit in our offices and read uh, read books. We we go out into the world. We call it fieldwork or ethnography. Uh, so we go talk to people. We watch them as they tell stories to each other. We we record them. We listen to their music. We we interview them about all of these things. So asking people why they like Superman was one of the first questions I would ask once we get all the the business out of the way of you know who we are and what I'm doing, uh, all of that. And then they would talk about his values, his morals, you know, how they used him. Uh, one of one of the men I interviewed said, you never have to guess what Superman will do in a situation. You always know what it is, and it's going to be the right answer, uh, which I thought was a really fascinating way to think about it. Right? Um, so I, to get to the question of why, why that is, it's because of the, the character has evolved a lot. So that's one reason people like him. You can kind of pick your Superman if you want. Uh, right now, this, there's a Superman show on. So that's that's the current one. 20 years ago, it was Smallville. Uh, before that, it was the Christopher Reeve movies. Before that, it was the George Reeve television show. So, so you have all these options. And I met people for whom each one is the most important one. Right. So I met guys who are you know older than me who watched the, the George Reeves show, Adventures of Superman in the 50s and 60s. You know, and it just kept going. It kept airing even after it was over. And so that's kind of why they like Superman. Uh, so they get together with all of these other people. And, and they these are two guys, Andy uh, and Alex Rinaldi. Uh, they go to the Superman celebration, the big festival, and they they organize all the, the, the trivia contests, right? So they love this one instance of it, but they know all the rest of it as part of like a social uh, gathering. So they become experts on everything so that they can interact with all of these different people. And that's one thing that people really love about it is, is the other fans. The, with fandoms today, uh, there's a lot of toxicity. That's the term that gets used. But, you know, the toxic fandoms that, that spring up around certain properties. Uh, with Superman, I saw none of that. And it might be just the ones who go to these specific comic conventions I went to and these specific Superman celebration. But they were so happy to be together. And it was everybody. If you if you just had read like one Superman book or you'd only seen one movie, they would say, come on, you're one of us now. We're going to we're going to take you through all of this. You get to do whatever you want. But if you want, here's all of this other stuff. Uh, one of the guys I met at the Superman celebration in 2010 uh, had gone down there from Chicago, probably about a five hour drive. Uh, just to what he told me was to take pictures of all the weirdos in the costumes. Uh, but he loved it so much that he goes all the time. Uh, he went and got a costume so he could participate in everything because he was just so excited about the, 
the atmosphere and how much everybody was excited to be together. I mean, it's huge. So there's that you can do anything you want. There's dances, there are feasts, there are children's games, there are rides, right? There's all of this different stuff you can do. And then if you want, you can just sit around and talk about Superman all day for four straight days. There's a costume contest. There's um, a film festival. Uh, there's like a little comic book room where you can buy and sell things. Uh, it's, it's a really great environment. It's a really great people. Some of my favorite people in the world. I, and I think that's a big part of it too, uh, is finding that community. Most people I talked to, what they would say is immediately they would talk about family members. Uh, some of them had, you know, their father. I, I met a woman uh, who, Michelle Lysinga, she would, she would go every year uh, just to do this with her father, right? Who had, who had sons who weren't interested. So she started doing this when she was young just to, just to do something with her father. And now he stopped going years ago. Uh, but she still goes. She was there in 2018, the last time I went. And she remembered me after having met me once, eight years before. I, just really great people. Um, also, you know, we we like to, like you brought this up already, we like to imagine having those powers. Right? Being able why, to fly, being vulnerable. Why do you think people connected with different supermen of the ages that we've had, from Christopher Reeves to Henry Cavell's to the one on Smallville to the newer one that's out now? I think there's another one out there. I mean, even the Nick Cage one, even though it was a photo on the internet, but if you saw the Flash movie, I'm glad they didn't make that into a movie. I'm sorry. It's funny for like a quick cameo, but I don't think he can pull off Superman. Give the man a Batman outfit. I'll take him in that. Oh, yeah. He might have been much more suited to that one. Uh, and so the reason that these different ones uh, attract different people is that they are very different. And so George Reeves in the 1950s, he he really played the characters as being almost completely the same. So his Clark Kent and his Superman, you know, the only difference between them is is the costume. He takes off the glasses. He's wearing the costume, but he talks the same. Uh, he's heroic. He's noble. He's he's a father figure in a very real sense to all of the other characters in the show. And if you compare that to Christopher Reeve, uh, you know, 20 years later, he's 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 got the distinction between Clark Kent and Superman uh, down pat. And there's a moment in in the first Christopher Reeve movie from 1978 where he's about to confess to Lois who he is. And he's Clark Kent. And she goes out of the room for a second. He takes off his glasses and he straightens his posture. Uh, and you see he's a completely different character. Right, so where George Reeves appeals to people who are looking for that type of father figure, uh, Christopher Reeve appeals to people who are maybe seeing different aspects of themselves in different situations. And so that that need to be a different person around other people uh, is, is very, very strong in some people. And, and they don't always like it about themselves. So they see here's someone who's also struggling. with it. So some people want Superman to be perfect. No problems. He just solves every issue that arrives. Other people like Superman to be uh, flawed, right? Um, and so we're, we're kind of in that flawed phase right now uh, where Superman has to make choices that even he doesn't like, as opposed to back in the 70s and 80s where we were looking for a model of masculinity that allowed people to be vulnerable, uh, but not flawed, right? Just able to express themselves. And you see that with with the Man of Steel and, and Batman v Superman. That's a very different kind of masculinity than Christopher Reeve was doing in the 70s and 80s. Uh, the, the Smallville one appealed to a lot of people because of the father issues going on there. He had father issues, uh, which hadn't been a huge part of the story for a long time. Um, people try to say it was in, in the old Christopher Reeve movies, but it wasn't huge. Um, it was there if you wanted it to be, but it wasn't foregrounded, right? It wasn't made obvious the way... Uh, the way it has been recently. Um, so there's there's something for everybody, but not in every instance. And so the comic book Superman is very different than the movie Superman, which is different from the TV Superman. And people can find something they like. And then there's, of course, people who just love all of it. Yeah. Do you find that people were obsessed more with the superpowers of Superman? Now it seems like with focusing more on the family issues or more on the mental issues or more on the actual emotional side of things, whether he's going through a tragic loss and you see Superman in pain, you're finding a way to be able to make it more relatable and connect to the actual audience. Like if you look through, like if we take an examination of like mythology, there's not a whole lot of stories that I can point to besides a dem demigod stories or things of that sort, or someone who's half human, which makes it relatable for you as a human reading it. 
doing a task that's fit for a god. This one person that can do godlike things because he's half god, but he is half human as well too but across the gods you really can't find anything relatable amongst a lot of them at least from what i can tell they're just doing crazy stuff and flaunting their power when they want but if you analyze an aspect in superhero movies that i always picked up which was the double identity you know i don't know where this came from or if i just developed it from reading graphics universe but i was always like you got back in the day you had to be careful not to talk to some old person with warts on their face because they could be zeus in disguise or something of that sort where the gods like, yeah, they like to flex their power, they like to be worshipped. But also there was this kind of like, next thing you know, you disrespect this poor woman on the side of the street and you lose all your hair. You turn into a woman that can turn people to stone. It's these kinds of myths where you start going, it's the secret identity that I can see in a lot of the superhero culture. It's kind of two questions. Sorry for doing that. <laughs> well, that's okay. But you're absolutely right. That is a part of some myths, some more than others. Uh, myths are also about moral education. Uh, they lay the foundations for things. And the way they do this is by rooting all of the lessons in uh, primordial creative acts. So that's what the gods do. Um, so if you can, the, the term is naturalizing. Um, this is a, a mythologist from the middle of the 20th century, Roland Barthes, he's, he's French. He says that the function of myth is to naturalize, which, which by, by which he, he's, he's saying that it makes culture seem as if it's nature. Uh, so it's just essentially saying the way things are is the way they've always been, and we can't change them. Uh, this is obviously a critique of myth in saying that in, in the phrase, I think what one one point he writes, uh, myth reaches out of the past to strangle the present. And it's he's he's not being kind, right? Uh, myths are institutional, and they they are what's responsible for all our government and and political and and economic institutions. So there's there's a tendency for things to to maintain a status quo is what I'm saying. Yeah. And so the myths root that status quo in inevitable, unchangeable pasts. If it's done by the gods, we can't do anything about it. We can't change it. Uh, so one thing you have to do is be careful of the gods. So you have to act as if anyone might be a god at any time because they do that, right? The the earliest Greek myths, right? The, the the Iliad and the Odyssey, gods are showing up in disguise all the time. And sometimes they reveal themselves to the heroes. Uh, so Athena shows up at the beginning of the Iliad only, only to Achilles saying, don't murder your king Agamemnon right now. Uh, don't worry, he's taking away your, your war prizes, but we're going to solve this problem. Just be calm. Uh, and then she shows up to Odysseus in the Odyssey, but she's a little girl in pigtails. And he has no idea that she's a goddess. So yeah, that's that's that goes way back in the study of myths, and it's interesting. It's it's also in the study, and it's also in folk tales. Uh, you never know which stranger on the side of the road that you share your bread crust with uh, might be able to give you a magic slippers or something that allow you to fly. So it, it's a it's a common thing in folklore that be kind to everybody because you don't know who they are. Uh, it's a it's a good lesson, I think. So the idea the idea of that. Uh, coming from myth is, is about moral education. But myths are strange. They do so many things at once. Um, and so superhero stories are like that, right? Um, be nice to the, the kid and who's really clumsy and he's got glasses and everything because he might be Superman. What do you think the overall... Uh, you got one of them, but I actually got a better question for you as well too. Um, when it comes to the moral education, moral education in Superman... I mean, what do you think it teaches morally? I mean, about besides maybe people becoming, I guess everyone has the power to be Superman. I think that's kind of what it was. It wasn't so diverse. It was, I mean, it, it was, it was everything. It, it included everybody. You could be Superman if you wanted to be Superman, just put on, put on a cape if you want, but it was more about, we all had this power to us. I mean, I think some of the comics that really illustrate that is where he is helping out police officers. You know, he is doing things that show like, Hey, these symbols, these people, their average people walking into a burning building or doing whatever that's Superman. That's the essence of being a hero. It's not just the whole superpowers method. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there was a story from the middle of the 1960s, I think, in the comics where Superman thinks he's dying. Uh, and so he's the story is about him trying to make the world able to survive without him. Uh, and this becomes a dominant theme of superhero stories, Superman stories specifically, uh, more and more as time goes on. 
Uh, and and so he, when he thinks it's almost over, he goes to the moon and on the moon, he writes, so I forget the exact wording, but it's like, be kind to everyone and every man can be a Superman. And so he's, he's expressing exactly what you're talking about is that he does all of these things, but there's a way to live without him where we don't need superpowers, where we can just solve all our problems ourselves. I actually wrote an entire book about this. Uh, it's at the publisher right now. Um, we'll see what happens with it. Uh, but it's it was sort of a follow-up to the first book and that the first book was all based on interviews with people that I did, going to the comic book conventions, going to the the celebration and you know watching people making and wearing costumes. So this book is more about the stories themselves, the Superman stories. Uh, so you you bring up, you know, how do people, you know, what is the moral lesson? Uh, and that's that's it. But the way it plays out in people's lives is never predictable. I talked to a man named Josh Elder, who's, he's written comic books, he's written Superman. Uh, he wrote a book called Mail Order Ninja, which a lot of people liked. It's pretty good. He described it as what if, what if Calvin's and Hobbes was, uh, the Hobbes was a ninja, which is kind of interesting. Um, he is the, I forget the exact title, like the comics ambassador for the United Nations. So he travels around the world teaching literacy through graphic novels. Uh, so this guy, he's a huge Superman fan. And I entered him, we talked, interviewed him, we talked for hours. Um, what he said essentially is that he was on a train one day. Uh, he lived in Chicago at the time, I think. And there was a fight that broke out. And he, it was really disturbing. Like there was a lot of violence going on and someone needed to stop it. They weren't going to stop on their own. He's wearing a short sleeve t-shirt. Uh, so he's got his Superman tattoo kind of up here on the arm. He looked down at that, and that's what made the decision for him. It's like, I can't have this tattoo without stopping this from happening. Uh, there's another guy, J. Michael Straczynski. He's another comics writer. He's, he told exactly the same story, essentially. Uh, he was at a comic book convention. He was standing next to a giant stand-up statue of Superman. Uh, and he did the same sort of thing, uh, stopped someone who had stolen somebody's purse. One of the other men I interviewed, Brian Morris, this is, I wrote about this one in the book a little bit more because it's so uh, compelling a story. Um, Brian is, he's, he's a writer. Uh, he, he writes a lot of novels and things like that. And when he said when he was a teenager, uh, he's a big guy. And another kid was beating up somebody. He didn't really know these kids at school at all, um, but one was obviously bigger and a bully. And so he stepped between them and he let the guy hit him and to stop the fight. And so he got home that day and his father, um, his father noticed that he's been beaten up and he said, well, what'd you do to the other guy? And Brian said, you know, I, I didn't do anything. It, I wouldn't want to be in a fight. I wanted to stop the fight. And you don't stop a fight by fighting. You do it by, by just stopping it, by not, by not being violent in return. Uh, and his father then proceeded to beat him pretty badly. Uh, so that wasn't the the final straw, but it was one of those things that made Brian eventually just walk away from his father and not talk to him again for the rest of his life. Uh, so his father's morality could not live up to the example that Superman set, and he realized that this was this was bad for him, for Brian, right? So these are the stories that people tell, right? How how does Superman affect their lives? They talk about their their families. They talk about their fathers almost can every I, time. Can I ask? That's kind of a partially a good answer to what I'm about to ask. But did you notice amongst all the interviews that you had that a lot of people were connecting with it at an early age in their life, not really necessarily an older? Because I wonder, like, the, I, I could never think of getting a Superman tattoo on my arm. I honestly couldn't think of anything that I'd care that much about to get a tattoo on my body unless it wasn't for a family member or something. But when you examined all the interviews that you did do did you find any similarities amongst them whether it was an impact in early childhood whether it was just an event or some traumatization or some type of connection that they had with someone that they loved or something yes uh, yes that is correct the, it, it's not always young childhood right um but it's often it's often those formative years right uh, adolescence right where we're we're able to think about these things in a different way. And we start to see some of the absences in our own lives, right? So as a teenager, you can see like, I need a father. Where is this person in my life? Uh, I, I interviewed a woman named Christina who it was exactly that. And she was a teenager when the show Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman came out. 
And so that became to her this, this way to understand what a father might do for you. So that can be a different age for, for different people. Uh, but yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely part of those formative years. And that can be for some people at five years old. It can be as a teenager, it can be up into your 20s. Uh, I, I had one of the, the weirdest thing that ever happened to me. Uh, I've never heard of this happening uh, to, to somebody like me as, a, as an ethnographer, as a, a, a researcher. Um, I was collecting books. I was checking them out of the university library. And one of the, the guys I was, who was at the counter was, was looking at all of the books I was getting as he checked them out. And he saw that Superman was on the cover and he asked me about it. And I told him what I was doing. And he said he was a big fan. He had been when he was a child. So for him, it was his relationship with his brother. Uh, so his brother was, was quadriplegic. Mm. And so Superman actor Christopher Reeve became quadriplegic back in the 90s. And so his brother was using this as a way to work through the emotions uh, and so Jeff, his name was Jeff, was was kind of in in this with his brother, right? So they're watching Superman, they're watching the old movies, the television shows, they're reading the comics together. Uh, and he said it wasn't something he ever did with his friends. Uh, it was it was him and his brother. So you can see these relationships. He was younger, so his brother is someone he looks up to. So that influence becomes really prominent. Uh, so I eventually sat down for an interview with him. And then the the weird part, the thing that I've never heard about before, was that I saw him again later, after we sat down for our interview. And he asked me if we could do another one. Uh, so he was essentially interviewing me because as, as he went to university or college, um, he kind of lost track of that Superman element of his life as he moved away from his brother. And so we're talking about all of the new stuff. And he's asking me about the comics characters and the movie characters and how writers think about Superman. Uh, and then I never saw him again. <laughs> uh, he, he moved away. Uh, I write about this in the book a little bit. Uh, the fact that he was at a point in his life where he needed to transition away from the university. He needed to be out there and he, he couldn't quite make the decision. So all his questions for me were about how Superman decided to become a superhero, right? How he moved from essentially being a child to being an adult, uh, which is, you know, even though you're in your 20s when you finish at the university, right? That's, that's still really what's happening there. You're moving out of this student phase into a phase of responsibility. Did you ask any of the people that you interviewed about the culture change um, just when it came to how it's been more accepted? I mean, it seems like everybody now is a superhero fan when before it was like Dungeons and Dragons. You could not really talk about it or people would get made fun of or something of that sort. And superheroes were kind of like that to a point. But there was a lot of people that obviously everyone we found out later was kind of a superhero or some type of fan, but we've been obsessed with this culture, but it wasn't like that, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Right. Uh, with Superman, it was a little more acceptable. You, you could like Superman, <laughs> uh, but still uh, Superman and then Batman was also there in for different reasons and in different ways. Uh, Batman, because people discovered that you could have this dark, gritty, brooding Batman, and, and that a lot of people responded to that after the 1980s. Uh, Superman, because it was happy and colorful. So that wasn't a part of my interviews, to tell you the truth. It, it could have been. It definitely could have been, right? Because some of these, some of these people were brand new fans, right? The, so I'm, I'm doing this research in 2009, 2010, up to 2012, um, but some of them had been around forever, right? Since the 40s. How so, open were they to talking about it with you, though? Oh, they were excited. Okay. It was the easiest work I've ever done in my life. Still is. Uh, research and, you know, working with people can be really, really difficult. I've had some projects that I could never get off the ground because people are, don't want to talk. Uh, but with Superman, you know, like I said, uh, one question, uh, why do you like Superman? And then sometimes my interviews would last three, four hours just talking about your whole life. So one of the things I discuss is the, the concept of your life story in, in, that, in that Superman and Myth and Folklore book, because that's what was going on. Uh, people were telling me their biographies, their autobiographies centered around their, their fandom for Superman. Uh, and I loved every minute of it. I think it was the best research I've ever done because, because people were so excited. Did anybody ever express anything that they didn't like about Superman or maybe something that was included or something that they came across about Superman that was not necessarily a positive? So not really. Uh, one of the things that I was interested in, uh, the, the informal culture. So you've got this, you know, Warner Brothers, Time Warner owns DC Comics. 
they they're very careful about how they allow these characters to be portrayed in mass media. Um, but with folklore, you're not looking at that element of it. What you're doing is you're looking for that informal, traditional culture. Uh, so it started for me with a lot of jokes. Um, that's that's how I got into this. I've been looking at, at Greek mythology in the United States. And when I finished that project, which was my PhD dissertation, um, I'd been looking at what people call a myth because I wanted to look at you know exactly how they're using this term. And there's a, a lot of uses, but one of them, the biggest one probably was Superman, uh, superheroes in general, uh, but specifically Superman. And so I kept reading and I just kept reading everything I could. And I found a reference to um, Superman, or not Superman, sorry, uh, to Jesus and Satan on the, the, the temple of Jerusalem from the New Testament, right? From the, the gospels. And uh, it made me think of this old joke, which is, it's pretty simple. I'll tell you, I'll tell you about this joke, but I'll, I'll just tell a really quick version of it. Uh, a guy's in a bar uh, at the top of a building and a second guy walks in and orders a warm beer, uh, chugs it and then jumps out a window. Um, comes back up, right? The, the first guy runs to the window and, and expects him to die, but he survives, you know, jumping off this, this skyscraper. Uh, so he comes back up to the bar, orders a second beer, chugs it and does the same thing. The third time he comes up, um, the first guy has to ask him what's going on. And so uh, the jumper says, you know, if you drink a warm beer, uh, the bubbles, the fizz, it, it, it rises up to the top. So that makes you a little bit lighter. And then if you jump out this window over here, the way the building is, is made, there's a huge updraft. So you kind of just float down on this updraft because you're so light. It's a lot of fun. So the first guy chugs a beer, jumps out the window and just splats on the pavement below. The bartender says, Superman, you're a jerk when you're drunk. I, I collected versions of that joke. A lot of people knew it. Um, I, don't, I don't remember where I heard it, but it was a long time ago. And so, you know, I found it on the internet all over the place. Usually it's about a hundred words long. Um, I collected one version from a, a comics writer at a convention in Chicago uh, that was a thousand words long. Uh, he was performing for the recorder. Right? Uh, so that's that's the kind of thing I was looking for. And so when you say, all that is to say, um, when when you find something that, that someone doesn't like, it's often that element of it, uh, the, the parody, the critique of Superman. Uh, there's another joke where he tries to rape Wonder Woman. Uh, it doesn't go too well for him. Uh, everybody knew that joke as well. Um, people didn't like it. Uh, they, they don't like that kind of humor. And that, to me, that leads to the conclusion that some element of Superman is sacred. Uh, when there are people out there who say you're not allowed to make fun of this, uh, you're not allowed to to make to violate it in that way. Uh, that means that there's a sacred element to it. Sacred, you know, in in scholarship, a hundred years ago, we kind of got away from the association with specific divinity, right? So it's not just something that the gods do. Uh, it, we we started conceptualizing it as as much broader as these things that we hold to be so valuable, we don't want them to be dirty or destroyed, which is complicated. It's, it's a very complicated thing. So, so that was one of my clues that there, there was something worth writing about at length here. It's not just 20 pages, it's 200. And, and so that's what it is. And, and so some people will have specific elements that they don't like, but dealing specifically with fans, uh, they love everything. Uh, the way it was phrased to me, was we find something to like in every version of Superman. Whereas people who aren't fans can just dismiss something they don't like. You know, they don't like that he kills a guy in Man of Steel or he doesn't, he doesn't smile very much. So they just kind of ignore that one. But the fans, they want it, they want it all. They want to be part of everything. Uh, so there, there are different types of appreciations. Uh, there's a very famous uh, scholar named Henry Jenkins um, he, he's really started one of the earliest studies of fan culture. Wait, I think I've uh, spoken to him. You might have textual poachers. I've, I've spoken, yeah. Yeah, so he doesn't like Superman because he thinks he's boring. He thinks he's too perfect, uh, which I think is is the wrong perspective. Uh, coming as, as someone who's written stories and plays and movies and things like that, uh, to me, that's a challenge. You got to make that guy interesting. I love it. I, I've never written any Superman stories, but uh, that would be the exciting part. Right. How is this writer going to make Superman interesting when he doesn't have to fight? He can just flick someone and they're knocked unconscious. Right. What's the interesting story? I so, will say that I didn't really like Superman until Henry Cavill's Superman. 
Um, I know a lot of people kind of have different thoughts on Henry Calvell, but I think more towards like when you get into like the Justice League, which I know people had a problem with until like the Zack Snyder cut and stuff. But I think you start seeing one that really stopped caring so much about trying to be the goody two shoes of the mix. And I know that's kind of like Superman's bread and butter but if you really examine like when he's fighting dark seed or uh when he's fighting um, i forgot what the one character's name is in justice league but as soon as the dude swings his axe down he doesn't even act like he gets hurt from it just lets him hit in the shoulder blows a little bit of ice on it breaks it and then punches the guy right in the face it's like that's what i want i was like someone that can combat the enemy but do it like this isn't bothering me at all like you know you see so much where he's trying like it seems like for me superman is always holding back and it was like, you could easily like do something about this. And like, I think that's like the first time when he actually came in contact with, uh, in Superman, Man of Steel, the other Krypton, Krypt Kryptonians. And you see him getting beat all over the place and feeling like he's not going to win. You know, he's going to win in the ending, but you're kind of like, you get to see the struggle. And I think that like, from that point on, you see it later. I know he dies and then they bring him back. And then I really haven't watched Batman versus Superman all the way through because I just think it's a stupid premise. But when you really examine, I guess, a change in a Superman, I like that it seems like it's becoming a little bit more tough, more rugged, more in today's standards of what we would view Superman probably would be moralistically like. Like it brings up to that question of morality. You know, I know everyone brings up they think they're going to be the good person that always catches the robber, doesn't kill him or anything like that. In my opinion, I think it's going at it wrong. I hate to sound like a crazy person, but. If you really examine it from like you have a psychopath like the Joker, for instance, you put him in jail, he breaks out again, then he kidnaps your family. And then you get to like if you look at Lex Luthor kidnapping uh, Martha, uh, Superman's mom, you know, he that that's a moment where you could have stopped Lex easily before, but you let it lead up to this. And then he finally you gave him so many chances. Well, how many chances do you give? You know, you really got to look at the end all when you look at like destroying a whole city compared to just destroying one life. It's like I said, it's a tough question because nobody wants to be like, I will just kill this person. But if you really base it on what you would do in that situation, I think a lot of people don't want to admit to themselves that they probably would choose that one life over all the or no, they would choose all the other lives over that one life. Mm hmm. This is the great thing about dark questions. <laughs> stories. Well, so that's exactly right. We can we can we can approach these situations through stories where there's not a lot at stake for us as individuals. Uh, now we might, you know, we might tie our personality to which stories we like, and that's what fans do, right? And that's why there's so heated arguments about whether or not Superman should have killed Zod or or how he should have handled the end of of Batman v Superman or something like that. And that, to me, is a sign that, that these stories are actually hitting on important topics to people. Uh, and this has changed all the time. To me, one of the most interesting things that happened in the 1970s uh, is, is an awareness of the, the genre conventions. Uh, we have people who are fans who are now becoming professionals. And so this, the stories change because they're aware of all these things. Uh, it's it's sort of a postmodern approach to storytelling where you've read everything that's come before, and so you have your own take on this. But folklore is is a particular perspective on culture where we embrace variation as a, a, a way to find meaning. So with, if you're talking about legends and myths, we know that these stories have been told hundreds, thousands of times. Uh, so we look at the differences between each telling to try to find what the story means to the specific people who told it this one time in this one place at that one moment to those specific people. So, so now we see what's happening. We, we think about the change in, in professionals, you know, in the 1930s, 1940s, and even in the 1950s, comics creators were almost exclusively Jewish and they were creating comics because they were Jewish. They really all wanted to be in advertising because that's where the money and respectability was for an artist in New York in the 1930s, but they couldn't get jobs. So they worked for publishers of comic books. And so they're not as invested emotionally in it as some other people are. Now, of course, there are exceptions like uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who created Superman. They were not going into advertising. Um, they wanted to be storytellers. Um, but but for by and large, that's what was going on. And so once, once that first generation or two of comics creators are gone, they're being replaced by the fans, the ones who who saved the comics um 
who who just read everything, right? Um, now they've got different ideas about what stories can be told. And those stories often reflect on the genre. So the questions you're asking are not the questions that they ask in the first generation, right? They're not interested in that. They're just telling stories. They're just churning out material as fast as they can. And so it becomes reflective. They start to think about the genre as something that needs to be you know, explored a little further. And that's where you get the question of whether or not Superman should kill somebody. And it's, of course, bound up in Jerry Siegel being drafted into the war in the 1940s, where he loses control of the character. Uh, so the publishers get, they get the idea that these are really popular. And so they stop letting Siegel do all the stories he wants to do, but he's still kind of fighting to do his stories. And then he gets drafted and he just can't write Superman again. Uh, he comes back to it later, but by then his control of the character is gone. And so they, they start making him into the, the, the term is usually Boy Scout, right? Does no wrong. He's, he's never going to make a bad decision, uh, all that thing. And, and so, so that's, that's what happens is the publishers take over and they transform him into that. Uh, and so by, by the fifties, he becomes the father figure, but the early stories in the comics, he is, he is, you know, smashing down, uh, bad housing and, and forcing the government to rebuild good housing for people. Uh, he's attacking uh, the police for not enforcing traffic laws. Uh, he, he breaks into a, a giant party of essentially what we, what we call them today would be like warmongers or the, the defense contractors who build all the weapons. And he forces them to go to the front lines. This is what Superman was in the beginning. Uh, he was fighting against capitalism. It's really fascinating. Uh, he was the champion of the oppressed. And so that, you know, it shows up every once in a while, but it's almost all gone. Uh, but it's, it's, to me, these are, these are, this is an interesting evolution. So we look at the changes that happen over time to discuss the, the different types of meaning. Do you notice that when back in the day, I guess that Superman was a little bit more political and you kind of don't really see a whole lot of the politicalization now on television? At least I can't analyze it. And I've talked to film critics who did, try their hardest to analyze all that and every single superhero all these types of things but i can't really see it as like i don't see captain america i mean maybe fighting the nazis or something like that but it seems like everybody routinely is on board with everyone hates the nazis so i think like that 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 just doesn't get picked up it just seems normal but back in the day they did a whole comic book sections like you said attacking capitalism i don't see superman attacking capitalism now if anything he's trying to figure out how to like make lois lane happy which is like, hey, I'm with it. You know, I get it. She's hot, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but you really get into an area where you start going, did we shift or the political tones in superhero movies? Do we see that as much? And was Superman better with political tones or is he better without? You know, how many people actually enjoy Superman because of the fact that he was doing things for this sense of patriotism? I mean, his whole outfit is red, white, and blue. I think when it went black that you have a whole conflict of people that are not happy that his suit was black because it seems more evil, it seems more dark, or maybe because it takes the patriotism out of the character, you know, what he envisioned. I know it's his symbol on his chest and for hope on his planet, but a lot of people see the red, white, and blue before anything, and they think America, they think this is, I'm just, that's my own personal opinion, but. Yeah, and, and I think it's definitely, it's, there's a lot to what you're saying. It's accurate. People perceive Superman as being intimately associated with the United States. Uh, and and this was this would have come up in my interview. So I guess I, guess I should start by, by giving you my perspective on politics. Uh, and it is, it is pretty simple, and it's one that is shared by a lot of people in my position, like scholars across the board, uh, especially those who work with pop culture. Uh, and we, we kind of just see everything as already political the moment it's created. There is no, there is no uh, non-political act. You can't do art that isn't somehow political. And so sometimes the politics are just embedded so naturally into the story that you're telling or the character that you're creating uh, that, that unless you're outside the system, you don't see it. But if you come from another culture, that's all you can see sometimes. Right. So Superman becomes sort of American colonialism to someone who's not from the United States. And that happens a lot. So that's just one possible perspective. Other people see it as um, he's he's everything that's good about America in the world. So he's helping people. 
right? So that's their view of America. So Superman is American in that he's helping. Other people see him as Superman as being colonial America in that he's he's trying to you know get American interests throughout the world, uh, and it's he, he's really political. Um, but when it becomes overt, when he starts to question, let's say mainstream American politics, that's when people get angry, right? So there was a there was a comic strip in the back of an issue 10 years ago or so, where he says, I'm gonna become a citizen of the world. I can't just be American anymore. People got really angry about this, uh, even though it wasn't, you know, it wasn't in the continuity. It was just like this backup story that's expressing this one idea that, that Superman is global. Uh, but people got very upset. Uh, there was a story in which that never got published where Superman was being written. We don't even know what the story was, but he was being written by a writer whose political views are very uh, extreme, we'll say. Um, he basically said, this is Orson Scott Card. He said, if, if the United States government allows gay marriage to be legal, uh, we should rise up against them and overthrow them. He was saying stuff like this. Uh, so when the, everyone heard he was writing Superman, they got really upset. They said, this guy does not live the values of Superman, so we shouldn't let him write him. Uh, and they didn't. Uh, it worked. <laughs> the, the, uh, the sort of grassroots, a lot of comics creators, a lot of comics store owners uh, said they will not carry that comic book, and DC pulled it. Now, the, the reason they gave was that the artist uh, said he didn't want to be involved in something controversial like that, so he wouldn't draw it, so they just pulled it. But you know, who knows exactly what was going on behind the scenes. And this was Orson Scott Card, he's written lots of comics. He's written Iron Man, right? So it, it wasn't a big deal, except that it was Superman. So, so that, that element of politics, you know, you can, you can write a character like Wolverine and nobody's going to talk about politics very much. But with Superman, it's always there. You know, it's, it, it's, it's there. So you can look at his stories uh, and try to dig deep and find the political elements of them. It's always, it's always there. It's just sometimes it's, it's not obvious to us who are inside the culture that produces it. Did they, did any of the people you talked to mention anything about how the older version of Superman was different than the newer version? Like details that were left out. Um, specifically, I don't think I've seen the Fortress of Solitude, or they have not explained the Fortress of Solitude in any of the newer versions of Superman, where I was like, that was his bread and butter, was the Fortress of Solitude. You know, I mean, he talks to his dad through a ship and all that, but it's not the Fortress of Solitude where it was like this giant glass fortress. Right. Yeah. Uh, that did come up a lot because being a fan of Superman means you are aware of all of this and, and you've got your idealized version in your head, whether that's a perfect Superman or it's a flawed Superman, it's still your ideal. Right. Uh, so some people would would bring that up, uh, but they didn't they didn't like certain elements or they wish they'd included some specific things. I'm trying to remember all the details. There's so much, it's hard to keep it all straight, right? Um, I don't think they ever get to that in a show like Smallville or, or Lois and Clark. Um, and then they, they, try, they, they get very excited when certain elements do show up. So that's what they tend to focus on. It's, it's more about the positive things that are happening than the negative things they wish were happening or they wish wouldn't happen. Uh, but again, I was this, the, one of the book's criticisms that I saw uh, was that I didn't deal with the, the people who don't like Superman. I thought, yeah, that, that's fine. Um, I wanted a happy book. I wanted I'm about to say, it was about the positives of Superman and how it yeah. affected people's lives. Why would you include the negatives in there? Yeah, I, I do make a couple of references to it. I cite a couple of uh, like magazine articles and, and blog posts that I came across that I thought, I acknowledge it. I thought that was enough. Uh, and, you know, the, the publisher thought so too. And it, it's done okay for me. You know, it, it got me this job teaching folklore, uh, which I expected I'd teach, you know, freshman composition at some little liberal arts college somewhere for the rest of my life, just grading basic papers. Uh, so the, the book got me the interview and the interview gets me the job. And, and so it's it's changed my whole life. And so I wanted, and I'm happy the way, it worked, the way that the book worked out. Do you think that like when we examine just the culture of superhero culture, is that the only genre that we have out there that really relates closely to folklore or mythology it seems like you you I'll say you have everything all in one but i can't really think of any movies besides like john wick or maybe he's a god it seems like it at times 
I love John Wick, I got to say. Uh, that one came out of nowhere. It was really exciting because, you know, no buildup, no advertising. It's just there one day. Really great stuff. Um, they got you with the dog in the beginning, and then now it's like the whole three <laughs> movies about he's still getting revenge. I love it, yeah. Uh, so specific genres, the Western, right? Uh, this is – a lot of people make the comparison of the superheroes today to the Westerns of the 1940s and 1950s. And there's a lot of there's a lot of parallels. Uh, just the dominance of one genre. It's hard to express. Uh, it, in the 1980s, we didn't have like one genre just taking over uh, culture the way that superheroes do now. But back in the 40s and 50s, it was westerns, uh, and they're mythical in a different way. Um, so if we think about myths, and we've been talking about them as these stories about gods and monsters and the creation of the world and all that stuff, uh, westerns are mythical more in that they they are expressions of ideology and that ideology is you know american manifest destiny and capitalism right so they that's that's more of a pop culture perspective on mythology and it's a really useful one to have uh, to think that any story that that embodies a myth right so the rags to riches story that used to be really popular in the early 20th century we have the the phrase is horatio horatio alger story uh, where he, through luck and pluck, the you know the the kid who's homeless and just shining shoes on the streets can rise up to respectable society member. Uh, we still get these stories, right? So there are still westerns. There are still manifest destiny stories being told. Um, so that that is a mythical story in that way, uh, even though that's not about the creation of the world. It's about the foundation of the United States, right? And that in that sense, it's a lot like. Greek hero stories, you mentioned demigod stories, those are often about founding kingdoms like Athens or Persia or something like that. So there's there's a really close relationship here. And uh, you mentioned you had another book coming out or one that you're working on. Can I ask a little bit about what that is? Sure. It's called Brains Beat Brawn, uh, Superman's Transformation from Superhero to Culture Hero. Um, so this book is, is, I think, like I said, it's mostly about the comics themselves, a little bit about movies here and there. Uh, but when I wrote the first draft of, of the, the folklore book, um, I had about, about 60 pages in it that were about hero myths, which is, I think, what everyone would expect in a book about Superman by a folklorist, uh, you know, the, the Joseph Campbell stuff, right? And I took it out because it wasn't based on fieldwork. I, I wanted the whole book to be about interviews and people. So I had this 60 pages, and what I did was I wrote around that uh, a new book about Superman as I, I talked a little bit about the fans becoming professionals and how they reflect on the genre and the nature of the character. Uh, it's about that. Uh, it's it's meta, what we call metafiction, uh, which people usually think about as being fiction about fiction, right? And that's what it is. So it starts off with a story from 1974 where... Um, these guardians of the universe is what they're called. They're from Green Lantern. Like they plant this idea in Superman's head that he's actually holding back human culture by saving them from disasters and all these things. And so it, it creates this question, you know, what's the proper role for Superman in the world, uh, both in his own stories and in our lives. And that's a question that the comics creators have reflected on since then. It keeps coming up more and more and more. And with it comes retellings of Superman's origin, which, gets retold so often in movies and television and comic books uh, that it's one of the most common stories in, in all of pop culture, I think, it just keeps happening. Uh, so what we've got in that, what I've got in that book is, is reflections on Superman as a way to criticize the world and a way to criticize comics, superhero comics as a genre, uh, which to me is, is, is one of the more interesting things. I always thought that the Civil War movie uh, was really about whether or not superhero genre um, as a genre still works. It's so different than it used to be. Uh, and the answer is no, it doesn't work. Uh, but I don't think anybody realized that. You know, it, 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 that's, the, that's the argument of, of civil war, right? Is that superheroes aren't, aren't a good genre. Uh, but how many movies have we had since then, right? It just, it keeps going. Do you think he's been a positive cultural impact or a negative cultural impact overall? Oh, what a great question. Uh, I don't know. Uh, positive, I think I would, that's where I would come down on the side of positivity, uh, because so I, I've given you like little little things about mythology as as a scholar, right? So this is the theory behind myth, and one of them, uh, which I think is the most useful one here, 
for the question you've asked is that myths help us think through big problems, right? And I think Superman does that. And, and specifically the problem that he's working with is, is the relationship of individuals to groups. And so what do we want as the ideal relationship? And so with that, my interpretation of Superman is that he is about setting limits on power. Uh, in that sense, uh, he's often equated with the American presidency. Uh, so a lot of the, what I kept in mind uh, throughout writing my, my Superman and Myth and Folklore book was George Washington. Uh, and I was really surprised when I finally saw Hamilton uh, you know, the, the musical, right? The, the Broadway thing. And at one point, George Washington is singing this song about how he's teaching people how to step down from power. And, and I was like, this is what I was writing about. That's the book. It's about Superman setting his own limits and, and how we have to learn from him that we need to set limits on ourselves. Uh, it's, about, it's about collective action instead of dictatorships. And I think that's something that we really need right now, uh, all over the world. And so the biggest problem I have with, with pop culture in general is, is not that it's, you know, like pop culture gets criticized as being kind of, you know, superficial, right? Vacuous and, and vapid and, and there's nothing to it. That's not, I don't think that's true with pop culture. I think some of it is, and it's, that's okay, right? We need that stuff uh, where you don't have to think about it at all. And I think that the problem with pop culture is that it gets ignored. And so if people who had power read more Superman stories, the world would actually be a better place. So that's, that's the trouble. How do we get, how do we get people to, to grow up hearing the same stories that we think are, are the best ones that they need to hear, right? How do we get Congress to take a second and, and really think about what our stories are telling us? Um, that's the biggest issue, I think, in the world is, is that, that disjunction between ideals and actuality. Superman tries to tell us how to overcome that. It's a good thing. Well, Daniel, I really appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links? If you want to promote your faculty page, if you want to promote any Amazon links, anything like that, I'll make sure to link it in the description too for people to be able to click. Oh, sure. I can send you some of that. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for having me. This has been nice. I hope you got as much out of it as I did, right? This is fun to talk about. It so enhances my knowledge on Superman. I can tell you that much. I didn't realize until probably the first conversation I ever had on this that this stuff boils down a little bit deeper, which I think is important because you can just get lost in the actions and explosions and stuff like that. But when you really examine film or you start looking to examine film, that's the best thing we can do is try and understand why someone resonates more with a certain figure. That's right. And that's why I was really excited when you invited me to be on. I thought that your your channel here is is doing that work. So thanks for letting me be a part of it. Well, Daniel, I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.